0: So my name is Ian Kenneth Bailey, I've lived in Ireland for 30 years where I've been the subject of a false accusation, a dirty, rotten, stinking lie.
1: On Sunday, the death was announced of Ian Bailey, who was the prime suspect in the 1996 murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier in West Cork. A terrible crime
0: which as yet has been unsolved.
1: Bailey maintained his innocence and was never charged in Ireland. But the family of Sophie Toscan de Plantier have always believed he did it and never stopped pushing for the state to prosecute him.
0: Everybody must know, understand that Jan Bailey is a murderer.
1: So, is the case now closed? Barry Roach is the Irish Times' southern correspondent.
0: Not entirely. I think there's a desire to repair the reputational damage to Garda Conan from the original investigation, which did not lead to a charge. But also, I think, there's a sense of duty on behalf of the current members to try and bring this to a conclusion.
1: This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sir Pollock. Today, after Ian Bailey's death, can the Gardaí still bring closure to the Duplantier case? Ian Bailey died over the weekend, just a week shy of his 67th birthday. He had been experiencing health difficulties over the past year or so, and you, Barry, spoke to him about that just before Christmas. What did he tell you about his health, and what do we know about the circumstances of his death?
0: I spoke to him, yes, on the uh, 21st and 22nd of December, just coming up to the anniversary of Sophie Tusk on the murder on the 23rd. And um, he told me that he'd suffered two heart attacks back in September, which had uh, caused significant damage to his heart. Doctors told him that his heart was operating or functioning at 25% capacity. He underwent cardioversion as well, where his heart was stopped and restarted to try and get it back in rhythm. And he was on medication with a view to building up his heart to a point where he could undergo a bypass operation in March or April of this year. So that was the background to his Illness. And then we learned yesterday that he had collapsed on the street uh, in Barrick Street in Bantry near his apartment. And he apparently was waved to some passers-by who came to his assistance. And they performed CPR on him for 15 minutes or so until the ambulance arrived. Paramedics then worked on him but were unable to resuscitate him. And he was taken to Bantry General Hospital, which is just five minutes away. And he was pronounced dead there on arrival, my understanding is.
1: Now, for background, Ian Bailey was an English freelance journalist who moved to West Cork in 1991, where he met and settled down with Welsh artist Jules Thomas. He did numerous TV, film, radio and podcast interviews over the years about the Tuscan du case. He was never far from the news. For example, he sued several newspapers for libel. He sued the state for wrongful arrest. And he was convicted of assaulting his partner Jules in 2001. Larry, you've been covering the story from the beginning, when Sophie was found murdered in 1996. And in the three decades since, you've interviewed Ian Bailey on numerous occasions. How would you describe Ian Bailey as a person and what had his life been like in recent years?
0: He's a very complex character. I would say he's quite, or he was rather, a a Jekyll and Hyde. He could be very charming, entertaining, well-read, witty, very blackly humorous. And there's that side to him, but then there's also a very darker side where obviously we've heard about his assaults on Jules Thomas, where he he admitted three of them in 93, 96, and 2001, and we covered the 2001 court case where he'd assaulted her uh, while he was laid up with an Achilles tendon injury. But on those occasions, and certainly the ninety six one, we heard evidence during the libel action of how Um, Peter Bileski, a friend, was called to the house by Jules's daughter and they found her, or he found Jules rather, at the bottom of the bed, really. He said it was like hearing an animal scream in pain. Um, Such was her injuries. She was taken to the Cork University Hospital. So he had that very violent side to him as well. He could also be quite egotistical, very sexist, uh, very misogynistic at times in terms of his comments and tweets about women. Um, But a complex guy. And the other side to him then, I suppose, that um, I think should be mentioned is the fact that Obviously, over the last uh, 27 years since uh, the murder of Sophie on the planter, his arrests uh, and his release without charge, but then during his libel action and his case against the high court, or against the state, rather, in the high court, and attempts by the French text him right into France, he proved a remarkably resilient character, certainly in the terms of the libel action and the case against the state. He lost both of those, but seemed not to be dragged down hugely by them. He always seemed to put out a very positive face to the world. I think there was a sort of, Equanimity to him, and a, philosoph- a sort of philosophical approach to life. So he had that sort of a, I suppose, um, stoicism uh, within his personality. But then, on the other side, on the other side, he could be a very violent and aggressive individual. And then he also had, a, obviously, quite a difficult problem with drink over the years.
1: Now Barry, despite all the documentaries, podcasts and news reports over the years, there may still be a few people unfamiliar with the, this case. Can you quickly recap what is known about Sophie's murder?
0: Yes, uh, Sophie Toscan-the-Plantier was a French film producer. She was married to Daniel Toscan-the-Plantier, a very important figure in the French cinema industry. And in 1993, she bought a remote holiday home in Tourmoor in West Cork on the Mizen Peninsula. And she came over there uh, during the summer and uh, with friends, and she came in December 1996 to spend some days there. Her intention was to return on the 24th Christmas Eve to, to France, but on the morning of the 23rd, her badly beaten body was found at the entrance to the laneway leading to her house, and that triggered a murder investigation that is continuing today, 27 years later.
1: And can you remind us how did Bailey become the chief suspect?
0: Ian Bailey was a reporter freelance at the time. He had been, I think, as a stringer for contributing articles to the Southern Star, the local newspaper from West Cork, the Cork Examiner's was then and the Sunday Tribune and he reported on the killing. He also uh, provided copy and assisted uh, Parry Match who sent over some reporters to cover it. So he was involved in the reporting of the case. But then, uh, within a month or just afterwards on the 10th of February uh, 1997, he was arrested by Gardy as a suspect. Um, he became a suspect for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, a uh, shopkeeper in Skull called Mary Farrell rang Gardie anonymously to say she'd seen this man at killfather Bridge which would be about one8 kilometres from um, Sophie's house at about 3am in the morning of the 23rd the night Sophie died uh, she later made a few phone calls uh, uh, didn't identify herself but she was later identified in asked questions by the Guardi about it. She made a statement and she later identified that man whom she didn't know at the time, but she saw him on the main street in Skull in late January and she identified him as Ian Bailey. So that was one factor. The second factor, I suppose, that was significant was that on the fourth of February, nineteen ninety seven, he gave a lift home to a young schoolboy, Maliki Reed, who lived nearby. Maliki asked him how was how were things, and he said, uh, fine, until I went up there and bashed her head in with a rock. Maliki's mother contacted the Guardian. He made a statement to gardy and on foot of those two events particularly, but also the fact, I suppose, that he was seen with some scratches. Uh, gardy interviewed him as a part of a preliminary investigation and noticed scratches on his hands. So the three things fed into them, forming the belief that he was a suspect and he was arrested uh, on the 10th of February at his home, at the home he shared with Jules Thomas, his partner, at the Prairie Lyskaha Skull. Taken to Banggari Station, held there for over twenty or twenty-four hours, but was released without charge. So that's uh, the background to how he became a suspect initially.
1: You've also mentioned that he did have this history of domestic violence, and he was convicted of assaulting his partner Jules in two thousand and one. Did this play a part in his name becoming front and centre?
0: That would have been a factor as well, Banggari a lot of Garda involved in this case would have been from Cork City and some down from Dublin so they wouldn't have been familiar with him but talking to local Garda, they discovered he had this history of violence towards women towards his partner and that again would have fed into their belief that he was somebody at least who would have been capable of violence towards Sophie Toscombe because by all accounts and well, I mean, the evidence is that she suffered a horrifically violent death being uh, battered and beaten and then finished off coup de grass with, with a rock or a block being dropped on her head so you know it's a horrifically violent crime and the fact that he had previous forms as it were for violence towards women was again another factor that would have suggested at any rate as to say that he was capable of violence.
1: Although Ian Bailey was considered the chief suspect in the case, he was never tried as the DPP said the evidence just wasn't there to bring a conviction. Garthy have now said following his death that the cold case review of the investigation into the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier will continue. But if the chief suspect has died why would they want to continue a costly and time-consuming investigation?
0: Well I think there are a number of reasons for that and Sophie's Uncle Jean-Pierre Gazot, I spoke to him yesterday, and he's very anxious and the family are very anxious. Well, they were aware that Mr. Bailey or Ian had, Bailey had heart attacks last September. And speaking to them before Christmas, they said that would be catastrophe if he died, that the investigation in Ireland would, would not be complete as it were. And speaking to him yesterday, again, he was of the view uh, they were shocked at the news uh, and they greeted with certain dismay. They, Jean-Pierre Gazot said he wasn't happy, first of all, that Mr Bailey died. The death of any human being, he said, was regrettable. So he hoped he would rest in peace in that regard. But he also said then that it would have implications for the cold case investigation, or he hoped it wouldn't rather, because while he was convicted in France in his absence in 2019, he felt that the Irish justice system needed to complete its own process of the investigation. In that sense, the cold case review was critical, and he expressed the hope that the cold case review would uncover forensic or DNA evidence that would put it beyond any doubt, but that Ian Bailey, whom he believes and the French believe, killed his niece, would be proven to be the killer.
1: What about the perception among Gardi? Is there any sense among them that they need to prove that they're doing the job right?
0: I think there are a number of factors why it will continue. Firstly, I think there's um, a political element to this in the sense of the optics of it internationally. Uh, if you can recall listeners may recall that uh, back when Michael Martin was Taoiseach uh, President Macron raised it with him the extradition or rather the non-extradition of Ian Bailey to, to, to France uh, to face the sentence he was uh, given in Paris court in 2019 so there's that element I think that's uh, will feed into that secondly I think within the guard, on God of Chikon itself there's a sense of reputational damage over the original investigation I think they want to bring it to conclusion for that purpose and then I think thirdly People involved in the cold case, hugely professional, they've had a a real success recently here with the um, successful conviction of Noel Sheehan, or Noel Long, rather, for the murder of Nora Sheehan 41 years ago. So they have that sense of purpose about them, and I think they feel as well there's unfinished business here that they want to conclude, and I think there's a real sense of feeling amongst them, for Sophie's elderly parents uh, her father George is 97 her mother Marguerite is 93 they're not in great health they came in 97 for the first anniversary mass they seemed elderly then uh, 27 years later they're still around and I think there's a real sense of among Angarda shikana both retired and serving that they would like to see this out for their sake as well and reach some definitive conclusion on the Irish side of the investigation
1: Coming up How new evidence could help crack the case, even after Bailey's death. So they will continue the investigation, but what are they looking for that hasn't already been uncovered, like forensics, for example?
0: Well, forensics obviously is the key thing. I think that will be critical if there's ever going to be any confirmed or confirmation of who was responsible. Obviously, Science and forensic science is changing and developing. Uh, we've seen that in the case of the the No Lung investigation last year. So that's one thing I think. And there's talk of uh, e vacuuming, where you have smaller samples which may yield uh, results in terms of identifying who's responsible. Back in the early 2000s, low copy number was a new technique, and Gárdosikona actually brought samples from the scene to the UK to have those tested but they weren't sufficient to get any clear matches so that's one thing I think the other thing that people could or what Gardy might hope would happen was that um, there may be witnesses out there who have information but may have been too afraid to come forward because when Ian Bailey was alive he was he could be quite an intimidating character and I think they may feel that perhaps now that he's deceased, it may make other people less worried and less frightened and they may come forward. So that's something else. And then the other thing is they're going back in a very thorough way, sweeping through a huge number of exhibits, a huge number of statements, picking up and seeing if anything that was said previously could be further explored and elaborated that might lead or point towards some other clues for them.
1: Barry, you've reported on the existence of a recording of Bailey made by a French journalist where Bailey says there's no forensic evidence because gardy contaminated it, and he knew that because he was at the scene. Why is that significant?
0: It's significant not so much because of the evidence about that seeming contaminated but rather because it suggests very strongly that Ian Bailey knew about the murder before he said he knew about it. Ian Bailey has always said in his statements to the Gardaí and in his court testimony that the first he heard of the murder of Sophie Tusk on the Plantier was at 1 40 pm on the 23rd when he received a phone call from Eddie Cassidy then of the Cork Examiner or to say that a, a person had been murdered in Tormor and could he check it out. So that's always been his position. Now that's been contradicted by a number of witnesses both in court testimony and in their statements. A woman called Caroline Lefwick told this libel case in 2003 in Cork that uh, she received a phone call from Ian Bailey sometime around 12 to say that he couldn't collect the garlic from her. Uh, Garlic was a euphemism for actually uh, some some cannabis, but she said that was it and that happened at 12 and when she asked why, he said um, he couldn't come because there had been a murder. There was also testimony from another witness called Paulo Colmón that around half 11 on the same day he received a phone call from Ian Bailey saying he couldn't deliver a turkey to them because there had been a murder. And the third element of this sort of issue about timing is uh, the evidence of a man called Jimmy Camier, who's now deceased. He ran a vegetable stall in Goline and he said at around half ten earlier again on the morning of the 23rd Jules Thomas was at his stall buying vegetables he asked her how Ian Bailey was and she said, well, he's up at the murder scene. It's a terrible thing, but it's his job. He has to do it. So there were three witnesses who contradicted um, Ian Bailey in that regard, as regards what he knew. The significance of him being at the scene then feeds into that and then supported their contention that he knew about it before then. But also, uh, there are a number of witnesses. Uh, Dick Cross, who was the Irish Independent reporter, Portugal Burnley, the late pitch editor of the Irish Independent, and Mike McSweeney, photographer, who said they received a phone call from Ian Bailey around or just after 2pm offering them scene photographs photographs of the scenes of the crime Mike McSweeney asked them when they were taken because he was conscious trying to find out what the light was like and he said Ian Bailey said to him they were taken that morning now the photographs were destroyed but our understanding from the statement says that they didn't show any Gardaí presence so they were taken pre gardi arriving at the scene and Gardaí arrived at the scene at about 10.20am uh, so again it lends to the idea that He knew about it beforehand. There's another statement from another deceased witness called Patrick Loney, who ran a sort of freelance photography developing business, and he told how in May 2000, a man visited him and asked him to develop a roll of film discreetly. He developed it, film and it showed a woman uh, lying at the body of a woman, lying in what seemed to be an entrance to a farmyard. Uh, That was in May 2000. In November, he visited the scene with Gardaí and confirmed that that was the place the photo was taken. And he later identified the person who came to him as Ian Bailey. So all those sort of feed into the idea that Ian Bailey knew about it much earlier than he said he did. And certainly now this tape would again corroborate that version of events.
1: So is the Gartha cold case now all about confirming Bailey as the only suspect or is there any suggestion that they may be looking at alternative suspects?
0: Uh, They haven't said they've been quite tight-lipped about it but Ian Bailey himself did express criticism of the investigation shortly, early in December he said he felt that it wasn't objective and that it was really trying to confirm him as a suspect so that is definitely out there as a perception Um, but I would imagine given their criticism the original investigation received uh, that Gardy will be quite tight-lipped first of all but also won't rule anything in and won't rule anything out that old cliches it were of police work so while it may seem that they're focusing on him uh, I wouldn't discount the possibility that they will they certainly will be looking at other suspects that were identified at the time and see whether there's anything to substantiate uh, the suggestions that other people were responsible
1: Finally Barry what does Ian Bailey's death mean for the family of Sophie Toscan de Plantier particularly her son who was only 15 years old when his mother died
0: I think there's a huge sense of frustration there's there's regret sadness her brother Bertrand has sort of said about the Irish system failing them so there is that sense of disappointment undoubtedly but certainly Jean-Pierre is hopeful that if cold case continues and some forensic evidence is uncovered that would prove a definite link between Ian Bailey whom they say killed Sophie and the murder then that would be some Satisfaction, But it's obviously not sufficient in the sense that uh, nobody, if, as, uh, in their eyes, is going to pay the ultimate price in terms of a prison sentence for the death of their daughter, mother, sister and, and niece.
1: That's all for today. For more on the investigation into the death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Pollock. Today's episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Connell. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.